You're listening to audio from New City Church in Champaign-Urbana, Illinois. We are a gospel-centered church with a heart for the next generation, passionate about making disciples who will renew our city in the real Jesus. For more information about New City, please visit our website at www.mynewcity.church. All right, good morning, family. First Peter chapter 5. Let's crack open the book. Y'all ready? Yeah. yeah, there we go. Okay, somebody's awake. It's good. We are Bible people around here because the best way that you can hear from God is to open his word. Goodness, is, there is not one of us in this room who does not need to hear from God this morning. Amen. When you get there, 1 Peter chapter 5, go ahead and stand in reverence for the reading of his word today. 1 Peter chapter 5 verse 6 says this, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. By Silvanus, a faithful brother as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. This is God's word. Y'all can have a seat this morning. Well, friends, we have made it to, uh, if, if you're just joining us for the first time this week, you are here for the last sermon of the book of First Peter. We have spent uh, the last several months walking verse by verse through this letter. And just to kind of catch you up real briefly, this book is written to a Christian church filled with outsiders, filled with Exiles. You know what an exile is? It's someone who lives in a place that is not their home. That their citizenship belongs somewhere else. And whether you knew this walking into the room this morning or not, if you are a follower of Jesus, you are an exile in this world. You feel it, don't you? Like, man, if you've been following Jesus for a minute, you know when you stick your head above the line and you live openly as a follower of Jesus, it's going to cost you something. Like here in Champaign-Urbana, the, the title Christian, it diminishes, it diminishes your trustworthiness in the eyes of the people in our city almost immediately. Your reputation suffers by just being openly a Christian. Man, where I grew up, Christian was like, man, once people found out you were a Christian, they were like, okay, this guy's all right. Here, it's nearly the exact opposite. 
It costs you something to follow Jesus in this city. That's who this book is to, to exiles, to outsiders, to us. That's who the book was written to, but you know who the book is written by? It's written by a recovering self-preservationist. Somebody who has a lot of experience trying to save their own neck. Our boy Peter, God love him. I'm not trying to throw him under the bus. Guess what? Because it's us, right? Who of us in this room are out there looking for suffering? At the moment that Peter is called to stand with Jesus and and somebody approaches him and says, hey, do you know this guy? You know what he does? He denies him publicly. And he doesn't just do it once, he does it three times. What does that tell you? In his very heart of hearts, Peter doesn't want to lay his life down for Jesus. Peter doesn't want to suffer. Suffering is hard. Anybody else feel that? And right here, years later, that same guy who denied Jesus, who who goes rogue in a moment of weakness and and as Roman soldiers come and try to take Jesus, he whips out a sword and chops off a dude's ear. Have you done that? Anybody? Don't raise your hand. Probably, we'll talk after. Like when it says he chopped his ear off, I often wondered as a kid reading scripture, I was like, how do you do that? Like how do you, like does he grab him by the earlobe and kind of saw, like what's going on? Peter is going for this guy's head and he leans out of the way and he just gets some ear, right? Like he's not trying to maim this guy, he's trying to kill him. That's our boy Peter who is writing this book and all these years later, he is filling these Christians with courage saying, hey, don't resist suffering for your faith at all costs. You know why? Because when you suffer, you don't suffer alone. You suffer with Christ. You need to hear this this morning. There is a closeness to Jesus that you will find in your suffering that you will not find anywhere else. The life of an exile is a life of resistance. Did you hear that in the text? Resist the devil. Man, when I was a kid, I was a sucker for a good resistance movie. Anybody watch the movie Red Dawn? Oh man, that was my jam. Yeah, I got a couple hands raised. Red Dawn is like, I think North Korea comes and takes over the United States. And then there's this band of teenagers that fight North Korea, which isn't bad, right? For a couple of of teenagers getting it done. But man, I watched that movie. I wanted to beat my chest, okay? I, I, I felt that. I was like, man, these guys are resisting. They're fighting back. They're fighting against power. There's something in us that longs for resistance because we were made for it. You were made to live a life of resistance. The only rebellion left in our culture is to follow Jesus. That's the only one left. So Peter is boiling down his whole argument in this this section with an assumed question. New City, hear this question from the Bible. Will you join the resistance? Will you suffer with Christ and experience his glory both now and forever? 
Right here, he's going to help us answer the question. He's going to give us some commands to direct us, promises to anchor us. And he confesses a truth that will propel us. Peter believed this, and he's inviting us to do the same. So we're not going to spend a long time today, but here's, here's where we're going. Uh, we're going to look through the three commands that he gives us. We're going to see four promises that Peter gives us here and one confession. Three commands, four promises, one confession. That's where we're going today. But first, three commands. Look back at the Bible. Verse 6 says this. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. Okay, you saw the first command, didn't you? What is it? Humble yourselves, right? Humble yourselves. He doesn't even say, ask God to humble you. He says, humble yourselves. Like you can get humbled or you can humble yourself. The choice is yours. I remember well as a, as a kid, I read a ton about wilderness survival. Okay, so I, I had books and books. I was like, okay, I've read this. I know how to do that. I know how to do that. But then I finally decided it was time to, te- it was time to test my chops to see if I could get it done. So I picked a day, middle of winter. It was Christmas vacation. It's coming down, freezing rain. And I'm like, this is my chance. This is the time to know if I've got the metal or not to stick it out. And so I go out there with a tarp and my fire steel to start a fire. And I'm like, I'm just going to see how long I can chill out here. I had a can of beans too, because outside for two hours, I was going to apparently starve to death. So I go out in my yard, I hang this tarp in a tree and I get to work starting a fire. And let me tell you something about starting a fire in freezing rain. It's kind of difficult to do. Okay. It didn't matter how many books I had read. And so, man, I'm sitting there, I'm trying to survive as long as I can. The freezing rain is coming in and I can't get a fire started for anything, no matter how much I, how much I tried. And I remember walking back in the house and my dad says with a smile on his face, so how'd it go? (laughs) Yeah. And I said, I would have died. (laughs) If this were a real situation, I wouldn't have made it. When I faced reality, it humbled me. This is what suffering does, friends. It humbles us. It tests us. It shows us what's going on in our world. You see, Peter right here, he tells us not only to humble ourselves, but under the mighty hand of God. Here's what he's saying. God could have stopped this suffering, but he chose to allow it into your story. Is that not a prevailing question in our hearts? How could God let bad things happen to good people? And the truth that scripture gives us is that has actually only happened one time. When Jesus was broken for the sins of the world, the truly good suffered as if he were truly bad for you. To humble yourself in this world under God's hand in suffering is the same way you humble yourself under a surgeon's hand. When you lay down on that operating table, you're saying, you're going to cut me, I know. But you're not cutting to destroy me. You cut to heal. That's what it means to humble yourself in this world. What does it look like? The rest of the verse tells us. Look on in the Bible. It says, 
Cast all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. When you cast something, you know what you do? You completely let go of it. It is no longer in your hands. It is no longer in your control. And you're not just throwing your anxieties, your fears in suffering. You're not just throwing them into the abyss. No, it says, cast them on him. That means Jesus is the one who's going to catch you in your suffering. He will bear the weight of your cares. He cares for you. This tells us something important, New City. Humility is the antidote to anxiety. We live in an anxious age. Man, I, I, have, I have conversations with people in our city all the time. I was just sitting at a, a restaurant in town <coughs> yesterday, and I asked this, this young lady who was waiting on me, I asked her, Um, how she was doing. And she's like, man, I'm so stressed. I'm so anxious. And like, if you'll tell a stranger at a table that you're anxious like that, you know what? You got to be really anxious. But the antidote to anxiety is not primarily therapy. It's not primarily medication. I'm not saying those things are bad, but here's what Jesus says. Humility is the antidote to anxiety. Anxiety says, what if something bad happens? You're constantly trying to put out fires in your mind. You're constantly trying to manage risk. But here's what humility, gospel humility says. It says, whatever happens, I know that Jesus is carrying me. Like, that's what faith in Jesus does. Whatever comes, you are prepared to weather. Because guess what? At the end of the day, you have him. When you cannot walk forward anymore, he will carry you. Humble yourselves. That's the first command. Here's the second command. Look at verse 8. It says, Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Okay, that's one command. What's he saying? He's saying, pay attention. Pay attention. You know why? Because the devil, your adversary, the one who is opposed to you, he's looking for someone to devour. The enemy wants you to believe the worst about God in your suffering. When suffering comes, when the moment hits you, when it lands on your shoulder, the enemy comes in whispering, man, how could God be good and allow this into your world? How could God be trustworthy? I mean, look, you trusted him and look where it got you. The enemy wants those things to take root in your heart. And you see it happen so often when moments of suffering come in your life or the life of people that you love. They either end up loving and cherishing Jesus for all that he is in a new and deep and truer way, or they walk away. There's very little medium faith that comes out of suffering. It's either a faith killer or a faith builder. 
And Peter tells us to pay attention. Watch. The devil is after you. He wants you to believe the worst about God in your suffering. See, there's an irony here. As Peter is writing these words, guess what happened? The one one time that the Lord Jesus, at least the one recorded time that the Lord Jesus looked at Peter and he said, I need you to be watchful with me. You know what Peter did? He fell asleep. Is that not the most human thing you've ever heard? Like, man, this is go time. This is crisis moment. I need you. I need you with me. And he falls asleep. That same guy was restored by Jesus to the point that he's writing to us and he's saying, guys, don't make the same mistake I made. You got to pay attention. You got to watch. The devil wants you. It says, and when you, when you see him, verse 9, he tells us what to do. Here's the last command. Resist him. Firm in your faith, knowing that the same kind of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Resist, in the original language here, this is the word for defense. Okay, resist is not offense. Resist is defense. In Ephesians 6, the Bible tells us to put on the full armor of God and says, I mean, put on the the belt of truth, all, all these different elements. And then it gets to the end and it says, so that you can stand against the attacks of the devil. It doesn't say so you can go after him. This is just defense, right? This is just so you're able to stand. That's what it means to resist the devil, Warren Wearsby says this, I think it's helpful. He says, before we can stand before Satan, we must bow before God. The only way to resist the devil is to have your allegiance belong to another master. For your allegiance to belong to God. And he says here in verse nine, that the grounds for the fight, the reason that you fight. He says, look, there are other brothers and sisters all over the world fighting the same fight. Fighting the same fight. See, in suffering, self-pity is one of the greatest temptations. And and here's the thing, feeling sorrow for loss in your life is not self-pity. But self-pity is when that shifts into another gear And you cannot get past the question, why me? I've been a good boy. I don't deserve this. Sitting in that place, that is self-pity. Remembering that this fight is not exclusive to you is a weapon against self-pity in your heart. Because guess what? If you are in Christ you never, you never suffer as an individual. You always suffer as an us. We are a body. You know what that means? That means when you suffer, when you hurt, guess what? So do I. We only suffer together. That is the way that Christians suffer. So he says, because you've got all these brothers and sisters with you, don't give up the line. Resist the devil. Fight. Resist him. Couple of questions. Those are the three are the three commands. Humble yourselves, be sober-minded, resist the devil. A couple of questions here. 
Number one, what anxiety are you carrying that you need to cast on the Lord? Like this morning, there is something that's looming in the back of your head and your heart right now that's robbing you of joy and vitality. It's keeping you from following Jesus joyfully and passionately. There is something that you are trying to take ownership of that you were never meant to carry. This morning, can I tell you about Jesus? He wants to carry your burden. The anxiety that you feel like it's impossible to get past. I'm not saying your situation's gonna resolve overnight. Maybe it will. But Jesus will carry the weight. He's good at it. Number two, if the devil wanted to destroy you, how would he do it? This is a question for a person who is being watchful, who's being sober-minded. See, you got, you got to get inside the head of the enemy who's trying to destroy you and say like, man, these are weak places in my life that I know if I suffered around this thing or that thing, I would really be tempted to walk away from Jesus. Like, man, for me, if I'm honest with you, I'm like, man, I'll suffer in all kinds of ways. I'll move, I'll plant a church, whatever, whatever, I'll do anything. But just don't let anything bad happen to my family. Like, that's the one thing that you can't touch. And I'm telling you, there is no part of me that is looking for suffering in that way. No part of me that's looking for suffering in that way. But guess what? Jesus would carry me. He would carry Aaron. He would hold us in that moment. You've got to start to get ahead of the curve in this conversation. If the enemy wanted to destroy you, how would he do it? You have to start believing gospel promises. This is why we're Bible people, because you have to, we, um, I forget what Psalm it is. It says, I hide the word of God in my heart so that I may not sin against you. So when the moment comes, you know who God actually is. You don't view the situation of your suffering. You don't view God through the lenses of your suffering. You view your suffering through the lenses of your God. That's why. And then the final question right here, are you suffering? That's a suffocating. That is a typo. I just want to be clear. Are you suffering to get, everybody's like, what is going on in this church? Are you suffering together? Are you suffering together with God, with brothers and sisters? Or are you trying to carry the weight of your suffering on your own? Can I tell you, it will crush you on your own because you weren't meant to carry it on your own. Give your burdens to somebody else. Maybe this morning, the first step of faith that you even take in your life is to say to somebody in this room, I don't know you, but I'm not okay. Guess what? You will be received with the heart and countenance of Jesus who says, that's actually perfect because you are a perfect candidate for the grace of God to shine most brightly in your life, to be a trophy of his grace, of his redemption, of his goodness. Are you suffering together? That's the three commands. 
Number two, we're going to look at four promises. We'll move pretty quickly through these, but look back at verse 10. It says this, And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Man, I love this verse. After you've suffered a little while, that tells you something about the comparative suffering of what you're facing right now to what's coming for you in eternity, Christian. The God of all grace, not the God of some grace, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory. You are You are invited to the party of celebrating Jesus and his beauty and his glory forever. And these words, oh man, these words give me so much hope. Will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Redeeming your suffering is not a job that the king of the universe outsources to someone else. He will himself take every tear that you've ever cried suffering in Jesus and he will restore you. That word restore in the Greek, it's the word to mend. It's the word that we see elsewhere in the New Testament when it talks about fishermen weaving their nets back together after they've been torn apart in a storm. Peter was a fisherman I have to imagine, I hope responsibly, the text doesn't say this, but Peter was a fisherman. He knew the intimacy that came with mending a net. And he says, man, if you suffer with Christ now, if you don't back out, if you don't run off, if you don't deny him, if you suffer with him right now, he is going to put you back together. Man, somebody in this room, you may, be fe- you may feel absolutely broken apart this morning and you need to hear that Jesus himself will put you back together. The text also says, the pro- that's the first promise, he will restore you. It also says he will confirm you. This is the image of him lifting you and putting you back on your feet. Man, is that not the heart of a father? Think about a child learning how to walk. A few steps, a few steps crashes into the floor. But what does a good father do? He picks the child up and sets him back on his feet. And all the while the child thinks that they're walking alone, but the father is walking right behind, right? He's he's there, he's guarding, he's guiding. Jesus will stand you back on your feet if you suffer with him. And then those last two promises are kind of a pair, strengthen and establish. These are building terms. Think of building a structure and beefing it up so that it can stand against wind. Earlier in the book of 1 Peter, um, we find out that God is building us into a holy house together, meaning that as the people of God, we are a dwelling place for the Spirit of God Peter is using that same language right here to tell us something important. 
A day is coming after you have suffered that you will be perfect without blemish, dwelling place for the Spirit of God. If you are in Christ, the Spirit is with you right now. But man, he's still doing some, uh, he's still doing some Chip and Joanna Gaines business up in that house, right? We got to take a wall out right here. There's still some reconstruction to be done in this house. But he's saying a day is coming when you will be whole and complete in Jesus Christ. Man, the Lord doesn't owe us anything. We need to understand that hearing these promises. The only thing that God actually owes us is judgment for our sin. But how good is your Lord that instead of pouring out his right judgment on you, he poured out the judgment on his perfect son so that audacious promises like these could belong to you? Like, goodness, we should leave church this morning with a sense of like, gosh, I am just glad to be on the team. Like, goodness, what did I do to walk my way into this situation? Guess what? You didn't do anything to walk yourself into this situation. You've actually spent your whole existence walking yourself out of this situation. But your God is so good, so precious, so lovely, so gentle, so strong that he gives you all the promises that belong to his son Jesus. That's a miracle. And it's yours. A couple of questions here as we consider these promises. Number one, what wounds in your life need restoring by Jesus? This can be a hard one to look in the face. A sin and a wound are different things, okay? A sin needs repented of. If you, if you willingly or even unwillingly disobeyed God and his design, you need to turn, meaning you need to change your way of thinking and submit your life to Jesus in that area. That is the response to a sin. But a wound comes when you have been sinned against. A wound doesn't need repentance. A wound needs healing. Where do you need healing? Give it to Jesus this morning. Give it to him. He'll carry it. Number two, where has suffering knocked you off your feet? This, this is the shock moment of suffering that happens for every person. You get, um, I, for, I think Mike Tyson says it. I theologian, Mike Tyson, I don't know if you've read anything by him. Um, he says, everybody's got a plan until they get punched in the face. Isn't that good? Oh, man. Like, okay, I know how I'm going to suffer. I know, boom, what do you do? You just start trying to stay on your feet, right? You fall over, you start flailing, trying to keep your head above the waterline. Can I tell you, your right response in that should not be to try to get your feet back under you, but call out to the one who will put you back on your feet. Do not first try to figure your way out of suffering. Call out to the one who will hold you 
in your suffering. Where are you grasping at straws? And where do you need to call it to Jesus and ask him to set you back? And then number three, do you receive this promise? God's spirit dwells in you. If Jesus is Lord in your life, if you are following him, scripture tells us that the Holy Spirit of God lives in you. Paul would go as far as to say in Galatians 2 that it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. If the Spirit of God dwells in you, what can you not weather? And not because you're tough, but because the Spirit is in you. He will carry you along. Do you receive that? Is that promise for you? And if I can tell you today, if, if Jesus is not Lord in your life, if you have not said yes to him yet, you call the shots, I'm following you. I recognize that your death was the death that I deserved. If you've not received him as Lord, the spirit of God does not yet dwell in you. In fact, the spirit of the world dwells in you. And I could say a lot of things about what that means, but particularly for our passage today, that means that you cannot suffer well. You may be able to get through. I'm not saying you're not a tough person, but you will never suffer in the way that God intends for you to suffer. The God who means it for good, who uses it for good. Those are the promises from our text today. And then we're almost done here. The last piece is one confession. There's one confession at the end of this passage that I want you to see. To him, this is verse 11, look back at the Bible with me. It says, to him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Peter <laughs> is finishing his book by bursting into worship right here. Like he's, he's raising his hands right here, y'all. To him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. Hear him say that with some passion in his voice. What is dominion? Dominion is rule. It's where a person has authority, right? So my family just traveled this last week and um, we got... We got the whole family piled in the car. And sometimes if you've never traveled with little kids, it can be really, really challenging. You can't explain to them there are 11 hours and 52 minutes left. Like it just doesn't work for a kid, right? And so man, I, uh, I took it upon myself to say, of all the things that I'm supposed to be for our family, I am, I'm the CMO of our family for this week. You know what that stands for? The chief morale officer, okay? So if I see morale getting low, guess what? We're gonna pull off the road. We're all gonna do a couple burpees. We're gonna clap. We're gonna sing some songs. We're gonna get back mostly for Aaron, right? Not for the kids. I'm just kidding. Um, and then we're gonna get back in that car and we're gonna be great, okay? So I'm the chief morale officer. I'm gonna keep morale up. And here's what I found. Sometimes it worked, but here's what I found more that has stuck with me after the trip a little more. My dominion didn't go that far past the driver's seat, okay? 
I could control my morale a little bit, but I didn't have as much authority as I thought I did in that car to lift everybody's spirits the way that I wanted to. When Peter says to him be dominion forever and ever, he is confessing a truth that you need to hear this morning. There is no place in this universe that God does not have authority, which means there is no place in this universe where you can suffer that God cannot purpose it for good. If there is a place where God doesn't have dominion and you find that place and you suffer there, guess what? It's going to be a bad situation. All these promises that he's made in the book of 1 Peter become void in that place. But why is Peter worshiping? Because that place doesn't exist. There is no place in this universe that you can suffer, that your God does not have dominion. Which means your suffering is never meaningless. Some of you are suffering right now. And you need to hear from Jesus that he will use it to make you more and more like his, his own character. Believing this is the only way to suffer well. That's the point of the book of 1 Peter, y'all. As I've reflected this week, I even thought about it. It's like the book of Job, if you've ever read it, it deals with a very similar question. Why do bad things happen to good people? Job Job is a poem and a story about suffering. 1 Peter is a handbook for suffering. Man, God has dominion forever. A couple of questions here to think about. Peter is worshiping, remember? What gets your worship? The worship is the thing outside of yourself that you put at the center of yourself. It's the thing that holds your deepest affection and your deepest longings. Can I tell you, if anything other than the living God gets your worship, you cannot suffer well in this world. And here's the thing about dominion. We have to ask this question. Is this God's world or your world? You see, there's a right answer to the question. But I'm not asking you for the right answer. I'm asking you, in your heart of hearts, what do you believe? How you answer this question will shape the way you experience suffering forever. If this is your world and you suffer, guess what? You have lost control of your world. But if this is God's world and you suffer, God can use your suffering for good. You see, Jesus suffered as our example, and Jesus suffered as our substitute. The Lord Jesus is not inviting you into suffering while he sits on the couch. Your Lord has gone before you. And he says, look at the shape of the gospel. It's, um, Paul Miller calls it the J-curve, right? When you go down in suffering, when you die the death of suffering, it goes up to resurrection. That is the shape of the gospel. And you need to hear me. If you jump on the J-curve of suffering with Jesus, your death, little deaths, big deaths, everything in between, always leads to resurrection in the kingdom of God. 
Will you suffer with Jesus, your substitute? He suffered for you. It's a privilege to suffer with him now. Here's my hope for our church as we finish 1 Peter. Number one, that we will stand as exiles. That we will be gladly odd in this world, in this city. That we will bow before Jesus and receive whatever comes with the trust that he is and will make all things new. New city, we are a family of exiles. Here's the question. Will you join the resistance? Will you? Let's pray. Lord Christ, thank you for your word this morning. I know there are, there are barriers in this room to us suffering well. I just pray that you'd undo them. Undo the barriers. Break chains this morning. And Lord, for some of our friends in this room today, they are in the middle of suffering and it hurts and it's terrible. And they need to experience your felt presence. They need to remember that you are with them as they suffer. Jesus, your resurrection is the promise that suffering for the Christian is never the end of the story. We want to live like we believe that today. Holy Spirit, we invite you to do a work in this room right now. We pray it in your name. Amen. Well, here in New City, we don't just want to be hearers of the word. We want to be doers of the word. And that means we respond in three key ways. Number one, we reflect. <clears throat> As the word was opened this morning, what has God been speaking to you? What's he saying? What new place of belief or obedience is he calling you to? Reflect, sort through that in your, your own heart. Number two, we come to the Lord's table in remembrance. We remember that our suffering Savior did not suffer in the abstract. He suffered for you. If you were a Christian... We invite you to the table. There are two stations up here in the front and then there are two in the back. One in the coffee area here, one over there. Come to the table and remember the death of Jesus in your place, your suffering Savior. And if you're not yet a follower of Jesus in this room, I invite you, stay in your seat. Don't take the Lord's Supper. That's for after you become a follower. But ask yourself, then what's keeping me from believing? this morning. Ask the person you came with, why did you take that meal? Why is that important to you? And then number three, we rehearse. You see, we believe every time that we sing, it's actually a dress rehearsal for heaven. That we are participating in what's going on in heaven right now, where everyone is standing around the throne, getting after it, saying, Lord, you are worthy we could sing forever and it wouldn't be enough. And so New City, this morning, in your suffering, I invite you to respond to Jesus when you're ready. I love you.